bum bum bottom 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 bum
Like, what could this book possibly tell me, Brad Gullickson, about Stanley? Right. But there is so much more in this book than the accreditation debate of who really right. kicked off the Marvel Universe. Was it Stan? Was it Jack? It really gets into how this affected Stan, both in his public and private life. And in my interpretation of the book, it's really his decision to obscure accreditation back in the 60s and 70s is the axis around the um, uh, the axis around which his entire person revolves. And, and, you know, he created Stan Lee. Stan Lee started life as Stan Lee Lieber, and he created the persona that we know of Stan Lee through the cameos. But that, that creation was an evolution as well, and it was constantly being rewritten all the way up to the end of his life. To me, Stan Lee's toupee is this tremendous metaphor of who he became and the kind of distance or buffer he created between him and his peers hiding behind this thing that isn't quite himself. Yeah, so I know you guys were expecting the next episode in our X-Couple series where we're going to be talking about hindsight and morph as seen in Generation X, but having read the True Believer book, and being granted this beautiful access to Abraham Reisman, we just thought like we we have to get this out now. And I think you're going to really enjoy this conversation. I highly encourage you to read the book, buy the book. You don't necessarily need to have read it to enjoy this conversation. And I don't think this conversation is going to take anything away from you having not read the book yet. If anything, it's going to encourage you to go make that purchase but I do think it is a book, if you like comics, you need to read it because Stan Lee's story is also the story of comics, mm. the industry. It's it's critical reading. Yeah. It's changed our relationship with Stan Lee and we've been talking continuously about how do we live and talk about Stan Lee's legacy now that we've gotten this glimpse into his private life. I mean, I mean, maybe it would be helpful if we talked a little bit about what our relationship with Stan Lee was before reading True Believer. Absolutely. Both Lisa and I were well aware of the debate of Jack Kirby versus Stan Lee, who is responsible for the creation of the Marvel Universe. Before this, you can go back and listen to our interview with Tom Scioli, who last year put out his excellent Jack Kirby graphic novel memoir. Highly recommend that book. But what's interesting about True Believer is not that debate. It's how those decisions Stan made in the 60s forever altered the course of his life and how those decisions in the 60s forever altered the course of our pop culture landscape. And the cultural landscape for us as comic book fans, where even we feel like, oh, we're cool, we're hip, we're more informed. We try to stay, say Jack Kirby twice for every time we say Stan Lee right, yeah. once or whatever. But we were also operating under our own fairy tale where we had kind of done this mental math of, oh, it's 70%. Kirby and 30% yeah. Stan and Stan in his enthusiasm, perhaps he was just kind of fooling himself. And you'd think that with 
more information, which is what Abraham gives us in his book, things would become clearer. But in actuality, it's only become darker. And maybe Stan Lee was a little bit more deliberate than we wanted to believe. And we also were thinking like Jack died penniless in uh, a certain amount of obscurity and Stan Lee died this happy, rich, confident, fulfilled person. And this book shows us that that's just that was just a story that we were telling ourselves. That was not, in fact, true. And it was the story that Stan Lee was trying to tell it was, also. It was what he was selling to us. And he's a genius salesperson. And is that not worth celebrating in and of itself? I don't know. Well, True Believer is not a hit piece. It is not a biography that is here to destroy the legacy of Stanley. What it does is it reveals the human being that was Stanley. It shows you Stanley Lieber for the first time uh, in a long time, if not ever. And it challenges fandom who We desperately want to put Stan Lee on a pedestal and uh, our pedestal just keeps getting shorter and shorter and shorter. And we get into that in this conversation. Uh, And and like, again, just like a massive thank you to Abraham because we told him like, hey, we just need like 30 minutes and we'll be good. We just got a few questions. And actually Abraham gave us more than an hour's worth of conversation. It was a total blast. There's so much to get into in this chat. you're really going to enjoy it. Again, you don't have to have read the book already to enjoy this conversation. This conversation is spoiler free for a story you didn't even know had spoilers in it, but it does. That's a fact. That's a fact. That's a fact. So why don't we get into it? We've been blathering on long enough. We're very excited uh, to share this with you. And then we'll meet you on the other side and debrief and talk about how Lisa totally cuts me off at the knees at the end of this uh, conversation. And here we are. Abraham, thank you so much for joining us today. We especially appreciate it knowing uh, and observing you on Twitter and seeing how extreme your hustle has been this week <laughs> leading up to it. So thank you so much for joining us on the show. No, I'm happy to do it. I, I, I decided that I wanted to have kind of a grassroots approach in addition to trying to get the, the big media outlets. I don't want to be just you know, up in the ivory tower. So yeah, no, I, I, I love, I love talking to folks. I love that you uh, do have the ivory tower as an option though. You're not excluding, (laughs) excluding the ivory tower. You will visit it, but then you'll come down to us lowly people. (laughs) Well, (laughs) lowly is the wrong word, but you know, just the the media that's a little more like listener supported Mm -hmm. and down to earth, et cetera, as opposed to like, you know, like I have a story right now with a big paper that I'm waiting to have come out and it's just endless editing on their part and, you know, iteration. And that's fine. It'll it'll be good when it comes out. But I I love having the immediacy of talking to folks who do podcasts and, and et cetera. So Yeah, and this anyway, episode will be dropping in twenty four hours. <laughs> Great exactly. See that's what I like to hear, the immediacy. That's that's why I like Twitter. It's it's uh, it's all instant gratification. So uh, glad to hear it. We have a friend, we have a couple friends, Liz and Jimmy, who had a book come out last year, Bites of Terror. And mm-hmm. the stress of having to promote your book 
in the middle of this insane year of pandemic. Oh, I, can yeah. you talk a little bit about, you know, you, you've spent years writing this thing and then it comes out this year of all years. Of all years. I know it's very weird to be in that special class of people who, who had pandemic books. I mean, my, the book was supposed to come out last September. It's September 29th of 2020. Um, but there was this backlog of books that hadn't even come out because of the early pandemic. Uh, and, you know, factories had limited capacity because of, uh, you know, COVID, social distancing, et cetera. So it, it got bumped to February. And um, initially I was pretty peeved about that, although I understood, you know, why it had to happen. And it was not just me. I mean, there were a lot of authors who are far more accomplished and better than me who also got delayed. But it turned out to be something of a blessing in disguise because the week that it was supposed to come out was the week Trump got COVID. So <laughs> yeah, I, I think I would have like been knocked out of the news cycle for the most part at that point. So um, yeah, no, it, it, it worked out relatively well, but it is, it is strange. I mean, this past week I've been doing all this book promo, you know, while wearing sweatpants and a t-shirt in my home, you know, that I, I had expected when I started this project that there would be like, a tour or at least like a launch event <laughs> or something along those lines. And as it turned out, the launch event was me and my spouse uh, ordering big burritos from Chipotle and eating them on the couch uh, while after which I, I started to drift off to sleep at like seven o'clock. So, you know, honestly, I can't complain about that. It's just not what I was expecting, you know? Sure. And I, I feel like personally, a podcast like ours benefits from it in some ways because you have have a little more opportunity when you're not traveling to jump on as many programs as you possibly can. Oh, absolutely. I, I can cram. I mean, you know, that's kind of to my detriment. I've, I've bitten off a little bit more than I can chew, <laughs> uh, at least some days, but it is easy to just go chock a block and put a bunch of conversations into a given day. But, um, you know, you can, you can go a little too far on that. I've had days where I've had three or four interviews and, you know, there was no real way around it. Uh, and I made my own bed and had to sleep in it, so I can't complain too much, but it was, uh, you know, it can get a little exhausting. Sure, sure. Uh, so, you know, since Lisa and I have read the book, we have pretty much been doing nothing but talking Stan Lee. <laughs> uh, and that's not that different, really, from how life was before your book either, because we are comic book obsessives and we're Marvel zombies going way back. Sure, um, okay. And, 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 and so, like, when I started to read the book, I thought, well, what possibly new could I learn from this book? Because I, I knew the whole, you know, I, I had the comic book stores that would say, like, here's the real truth about Stan Lee. Right. And I learned the whole controversy around the accreditation, you know, when I was much younger. Um, but then I read your book and there's just so much more. And you had you had. Uh, information at your disposal uh, that w was just like unprecedented, and uh, I, I was in awe of what I pulled out of your book. So, if Aww. any listeners are listening and they think they know the story of Stan Lee and Jack Kirby and Steve Ditko, John Romita, etc., uh, no, you don't. Read the book. <laughs> Read the book. Um, Thank you. Now, that was a long-winded way of saying. The book is also very painful if you're a Stan Lee fan uh, and you are unaware of certain things. 
Um, and I'm kind of curious, like when I look at your book and I open it up and I go to all the pictures, there is one picture in particular at the center of the book depicting you. I think you're at a, uh, wizard <laughs> world was, convention. Wizard world 1998. I believe it's wizard world 1998. It's undated, but I, based on various factors, I'm pretty sure it was wizard world 1998 in Rosemont, Illinois. Uh, which was, uh, I, I believe my first Comic-Con. Um, and, uh, you know, it was a very different world for comics and for Stan Lee and for Marvel as of, uh, as of then, Mm -hmm. um, you know, the, the big thing being that, um, you know, everybody was kind of stuck in a rut. Uh, Marvel had gone bankrupt a couple of years prior, uh, and was still suffering, um, the comic book industry had cratered a few years prior and had not really crawled out of the hole yet. Um, and Stan was really languishing at Marvel. Um, he had been there, obviously, in one incarnation of the company or another since, you know, 1939, 1940. Um, but by 1998-ish, he, he was basically doing nothing. I mean, he'd had this attempted and much discussed in or at least by him uh line of comics that he was planning to do at marvel called excelsior um that never panned out and you know there just wasn't a whole lot going on with him and from my research later i learned he was he was pretty depressed about that but you know what that added up to was when i was there at wizard world I waited in line to get an autograph from Stan and, you know, it took like 15 minutes, maybe half an hour in the line. And it's not like I had to pay anything to get the signature. There was no real like security or anything. It was just him sitting at this crummy table with like a hand drawn sign saying, you can see it in the photo. Mm -hmm. I can't remember exactly what it is, but something like see Stan Lee of Marvel comics. And it's just sort of scribbled there. You know, it was, it was very low key and low fi um, so that day, I uh, was out of that day or the day before, knowing that I would uh, get a signature from Stan Lee, I picked up a really beaten up old copy of Fantastic Four number 47. Mm. Uh, you know, it wasn't really worth anything despite how old it was because it was so uh, iffy in its, its construction by then. Um, but, you know, I wanted to get something with Stan Stan's credit on it. And to be honest, I hadn't really read Almost, I mean, you know, I was in—I just graduated sixth grade. If it was indeed '98, um, I hadn't really read any Stan Lee comics for the most part because reprints of the old stuff were not that easy to find as of then, which mm-hmm. was another factor that kind of hampered Stan's uh, ability to market himself. But you know, I went to one of the back issue bins at some some retailer there or some dealer, uh, waited in line for a little bit, and then handed him the comic to sign. And, you know, I, I slide it across the table. He starts signing it. My mom takes out this disposable camera that we brought to commemorate uh, the trip. And she took the photo. And you can see the photo in the book. You know, that instant is captured. And about a nanosecond after that, uh, having seen the flash, he, he looks up. He looks at me. He looks at my mom and, you know, it, it sounds weird, but it's etched in my memory. And I swear to God, it happened. He says, you've immortalized me, oh. uh, which is a very weird, weird thing that happened. And anyway, I, I, I will I will be careful about using that phrase uh, with people in the future, lest they become my biographers. But, oh, my God. Um, I know it's a very weird thing. But anyway, it doesn't really mean anything. So that was. 
that was the first time I ever encountered Stan and one of only three times that I had any real direct interaction with him. Mm. And they were all really minor moments. I mean, I never, I never got a real interview with Stan. I had an email interview with him when I wrote this profile for, for Vulture, for New York Magazine's arts and culture site, Vulture, uh, back in 2015. Uh, I came out in 2016, but I did the interview in 2015. It was just a few questions via email that were heavily censored by whoever the intermediary was. Um, and, you know, the answers weren't all that interesting. But, you know, that was one sort of interaction. And then, you know, a few weeks after that, I went to uh, the Stan Lee's Kamikaze Comic Con mm. in L.A. Um, and went to a press conference that was relatively small. And I asked one question. So that was any answered. So, I mean, that was, that was the third somewhat direct interaction I had with him, but this is all a way of saying, you know, the profile that, you know, was the seed for this book and the book itself were, were really, they were right arounds. I mean, I, I didn't really have any access to the subject. It was all people around him and documentation of him and so on and so forth. And, yeah, you know, that presented challenges that we can get into if you like, but it, it was, it, that photo was the, the sort of the one moment in which he and I had a relatively one-on-one -on -one interaction uh, that happened in real time. Well, I can't help but wonder what that version of yourself, the, the version that was standing before Stanley who waited a little bit in line to get that autograph, what he would think of your book. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's hard to say, but I, I would hope that I would have found it interesting. I mean, I'll be completely honest. I have ADHD and it's pretty bad. And I, I don't read prose for fun all that much. <laughs> Obviously I read a lot of prose for work, but if I have, you know, time to myself, it's hard to force myself to read that. But, um, you know, uh, comics though were a lot easier for me to consume. It's a completely different kind of reading. Um, so, you know, I don't, back then, the funny thing is Stan didn't really hold that much interest for me. I, I, he was not a figure that took on a real emotional significance for me the way that he did for a lot of people, including mm. people of my generation, uh, but especially people who were older and had, you know, watched and read and experienced Stan in, um, you know, more of his heyday. But, you know, I'm coming up at this time in the 90s when it's still Stan Lee Presents on the comics, but he's not really an active force all that much. And, you know, he still had Stan soapbox columns. But I just didn't really develop that kind of attachment to him that a lot of folks did and still do. Um, so if I'd read the book, I think I would have found it interesting. But, um, you know, and there were a few bits that I think would have really shocked me um, uh, in the book because they shocked me even, even as an adult when I was finding them out. But, you know, I think I would have found it interesting, but it wouldn't have, like, ruined my dreams or anything because I, I just didn't really think about Stan that way. I had something of a remove, you know? Mm, yeah. So what was the impetus of writing that first Vulture article? So like, what was the pitch? It, and Right. So I had um, I'd been writing about the comic book industry for a few years at Vulture and New York Magazine. Um, and, you know, because even though Stan was not uh, an object of deep affection for me, comics were, and, mm -hmm. and especially Marvel. I had spent a lot of my childhood and teen years reading that stuff. 
kind of fell off uh, during college and immediately after college. And then uh, a few years out of college, when I was, you know, when I was working at New York Magazine um, as a staffer, I started reading comics again. Well, it started a little bit before that, but I started writing about them when I was at New York Mag slash Vulture. And, um, you know, like had some successes. You know, I'd started writing that stuff in 2013. By, you know, two years in, around August 2015, at the magazine, people knew this was the kind of thing I did and that I had, you know, a little little bit of a beat. And this editor at New York Mag, a guy named David Wallace Wells, who's just a tremendous writer, reporter, editor. Um, you know, he did this book on climate change a few years ago called The Uninhabitable Earth that is, will blow your mind. But he he walks over to my desk and he slaps down this galley copy of Stan's 2015 graphic memoir, which had not yet come out. Uh, and therefore, that's why it was galley copy. Um, Amazing, Fantastic, Incredible is the title of it. And he said you should do something with this. And so I leapt into research mode, started, you know, contacting people, trying to get an interview with Stan, reading his memoir, reading biographies, et cetera. And about a week in, I went to go talk to David and said, okay, well, here's what I got. And, you know, about 30 seconds into me giving my spiel, he goes, whoa, whoa, whoa. I meant you should like write a short review. Of it. Like, <laughs> this was, this was not what he had meant by it, but to his credit, his response to that was to say, well, but it sounds like you're getting some interesting stuff, so keep going, see what you find, um, which it was, uh, you know, I'll be forever very grateful to him for that. And, yeah, so there wasn't really a pitch on my part. It was much more, um, you know, a happy accident. But, you know, he held interest for me because after a couple of years of writing about the comics industry – you come to see that, you know, he really is this singular figure and you can't understand the modern comics industry without understanding him um, to a certain degree. And, you know, it just seemed like at the time it was a real culmination of a lot that I'd been doing in the previous couple of years and throughout my career as a journalist prior to that. Um, and, you know, it was a very appealing project and it was, it was pretty intense. It, it took a lot of effort Um you know, a lot of it was, it wasn't just that it was an interesting project, but also it ended up being the longest piece I'd ever published. It was about 10,000 words. And, um, you know, there was a lot of research for it. And David Wallace Wells really kind of changed my career, not just by uh, letting me do the profile, but when I was writing it and he was editing it, it really encouraged me to sort of use my voice and kind of not pontificate, but, you know, opine and not just present sort of a narrative of, of what happened and to, you know, have certain flair and style and interpretation, which to be honest, I hadn't done a ton of prior to that point. No one had really ever, um, rolled the dice on me being that kind of features writer. Um, so that was, that was, I, you know, again, like I said, I'll be forever indebted to him for all that, but to answer your question, there was a long winded way of answering your question. There wasn't really a pitch. It was more just a misunderstanding that turned out to be fruitful. You know, I really appreciate the inclusion of your voice and your perspective because it does offer this story some humility because it does get in places, like, scathing. And I think that, like, that 
um, uh, like that empathy is critical for making this at all like readable for me personally. Um, so you, Thank you. the um, oh, I have so many questions. Um, I'll start with this. So you open the book with Sophie and Xanfer in the old country. Like yeah. you go, like I go deep. Like you go all the way to his conception, practically. So um, before that, even yeah, yeah, it's, it's yeah. All, so, the, all the way, and you know, to the raising of his his mother and father in uh, in eastern Romania. Yeah, that that was something that I felt. You know, I mean, look, I, I I'm Jewish. I find Jewish topics, Jewish history, sort of inherently interesting um, for you know slightly narcissistic reasons, but it's also just an interesting topic area where there's a lot to dig into, um, and. You know, when I started writing this book, at some point early in the process, I realized, you know, I don't know anything about Stan's Jewish background, nor had there really been anything written about it. Like, it was on the record that his parents were Romanian Jewish immigrants. And that was about it. That was like, there were little tidbits here and there. Like, you know, he had this quote where he said, you know, in the early aughts where he said that he didn't believe in religion, not just the Jewish religion, but, you know, the, just the concept of religion didn't work for him. Um, and beyond that, there just wasn't almost anything out there, which turned out to be its own interesting factor. Um, you know, his parents, as I traced, um, along with the help of uh, some research assistants who were enormously helpful. Well, a side note on that, you know, I, I hired a, a genealogist to help me out on this because, mm. you know, I'm, I'm not, that, that's not my area of expertise. And I knew there were going to be databases and ways to navigate those databases that I just didn't know about or how to do. Um, so I hired this wonderful genealogist, a woman named Meryl Schumacher, uh, and, uh, she helped. And then also I hired a couple of people in Romania, to look through archives there because that was obviously going to be beyond my ken. Um, and what I turned up was this rich, interesting story about, um, to, you know, Stan's parents, two people who lived during this period of accentuated and in many ways unique anti-Semitism. You know, we tend to kind of generalize, okay, Eastern Europe, they were all anti-Semitic. Everybody left for the same reason, et cetera, et cetera. It's really not the case. Every every individual there has a unique story, and every population, every Jewish population throughout that region had their own troubles and push and pull factors. So, you know, I learned about that, and what I and also through my interviews with uh, Stan's brother, Larry Lieber, I learned a lot about the specific familial relationship to Judaism and Jewishness which was pretty intense mm. uh, among uh, at least their father, Jack Lieber, who was born Yanku Ern Lieber in Bodishan, Romania, um, about a, a half-Jewish city that, uh, when Stan's dad was young, was the site of this horrific pogrom. You know, uh, nobody died, but the whole, the whole section of the Jewish part of town was just completely wrecked and terrorized. And, you know, Stan's dad was almost uh, five at that point. You know, he's, he's a kid. And 
I'm sure that left uh, that and other incidents, I'm sure, left a big impression on him. And when he got to America and was raising kids, he was pretty passionate about being Jewish. Now, he wasn't that religiously observant. Um, he went to synagogue, uh, you know, sometimes. But when it came to just sort of his Jewish ethnicity and identity, that was something that Jack really cared a lot about and really tried to uh, make his kids care about. And it, it just didn't take with the two of them, really. And Stan especially really just walked away from Jewishness over the course of his life. It just, it was not something that he wanted to engage in. Now, I, I'm not an armchair, you know, I can be an armchair psychologist. I shouldn't do it too much. But by Stan's own words, especially in his, his first memoir, Excelsior, um, you know, he really defined himself in a lot of ways in his career in a lot of ways by trying to be different from his father and to do what his father couldn't do or didn't do. And I can't help but wonder if um, Stan, in constructing the persona that became Stan Lee, um, as opposed to Stanley Martin Lieber, his, his birth name, uh, was not in many ways uh, – I can't help but wonder if it was – inspired in a lot of ways by a desire to be different from his dad. Mm. Um, you know, where his dad was this kind of dour, uh, difficult, um, quiet, and very Jewishly engaged guy, Stan ended up being, um, you know, happy-go-lucky, gregarious, and totally de-ethnicized. I mean, he still had that accent, the sort of New York Jewish accent that he never kicked. But other than that, he never talked about being Jewish. Mm -hmm. I mean, I found in my research one quote where he says something about, like, Jewish people, and I include myself, think a certain way, something like that. Other than that, it, it just was not something that um, he wanted anything to do with. Um, and to the point where, you know, he intermarried. He, he married an Episcopalian English woman, which was very unusual for a Jew at that point, as of 1947. You know, they had their daughter baptized, they celebrated Christmas. None of this is me indicting any of that, and it's all perfectly, mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's not a crime. Um, but it is an interesting factor in trying to understand who Stan was and how he formed his identity um, and what he didn't want as a part of his identity. As you can tell, I can talk about the Jewish aspects all day, um, but I don't want to bore you or your listeners. So you are, I'll stop there. Uh, please. Like, I find all of this so compelling. And it was an aspect that I had not really considered until I was reading your book. Yes. Yeah, I mean, it just hadn't been discussed. It, it, because You know, because it was this omission. It was not that there was something present that no one was discussing. It's there was an absence that no one was discussing. Um, and, you know, I, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm glad that I was able to turn stuff up because I think it really fleshes out the story. Um, and, you know, again, just from a pure selfish perspective, I found it interesting. And I, I hope that comes through in the work in a way that makes it interesting for other people. What I find fascinating in this book is the idea that everything seems to hinge on everything leading up to him creating Stanley the character mm, as yeah. a means to garner admiration and love and and money and all of these things he he grew up with like this sense of scarcity for yeah. and then after that moment, after that moment in the 60s where he's uh, done some unspeakable things when it comes to 
taking credit, lying, obscuring the truth. And then everything from that point on seems to be kind of making up for what, like trying to um, align himself with everything he said in the 60s is the way the book reads to me. Interesting. Yeah, that's that's not that's not far off. I mean, you know, you can characterize it different ways, but that's I would say that's a totally valid interpretation. I mean, he it's funny to go back and look at the way he was in the 60s, because that's the height of his achievements, really. I mean, whatever you think about stealing credit, he was still participating in these comics and the creation of these comics in in, a, in pretty essential ways, whether it was as an editor or an art director or the person writing the dialogue and narration. But, but the character of Stan Lee hadn't been fully developed by that point. He, you know, the character really starts on the page with the letters columns and the narration boxes where he's kind of directing, uh, addressing the reader directly um, and the community directly. But when you watch footage of him uh, and see photos of him, he had certainly not developed the, 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 the visual image of Stan Lee yet. You know, it's not until the 70s that he starts wearing the shades and doing the mustache you know, he was bald, and the toupee, I mean, he was bald in the mid-60s and was not, you know, not always hiding it, and spoke very softly and calmly, um, and, you know, had this beard. What I'm trying to say is, in the 60s, at the height of his coolness, he was not even fully Stan Lee as we think of him Mm -hmm. yet. Only after that period was over did you start to really see him put together the pieces and become uh, what we think of as the character of Stan Lee. And, you know, that refining of that character over the decades after the 60s was, you know, what kept him what kept him fed. I mean, he was useful to Marvel even beyond, you know, the point where he was, you know, creating stuff or, or really being effective and selling stuff, um, you know, or rather I should say effective in like selling movies or whatever, which was kind of his main goal as of the, you know, late seventies, uh, onward for a few decades, you know, even when that stuff wasn't working out, he was still very useful to Marvel as this image, as this figurehead, as this voice. Um, he would do interviews all the time, even when he wasn't, uh, you know, creating that much new work. And that was true all the way up until, well, I mean, it was true in a lot of ways until the end of his life, right? I mean, he starts mm-hmm. making the cameos in the movies starting in 2000, although there are sort of precedents to the cameos, but, you know, the, the real core cameos in Marvel, theatrical Marvel movies really begins in 2000. You know, that's all image. He's in those movies, and he's not really, like, he's not doing much in the way of acting, right? He's just saying mm-hmm. one or two lines um, while sort of standing there and looking like himself. And, you know, put him in a costume, but... It's not going to be too much of a costume because you need to recognize that it's Stan Lee. And when I say you're recognizing it's Stan Lee, I mean you're recognizing it's this character that by 2000, he had spent decades trying to kind of get down to a T. And once he did and was able to be a part of these unbelievably successful pop culture texts, that character really gets seared into the imagination of not just – you know, geeks in America, but just the general public throughout the world. I mean, you think about, you know, Avengers Endgame, where he has the cameo as, you know, him in the 70s during the time travel, driving along saying, you know, make love, not war. 
by that point, you're talking about a movie that is being seen by, it's making, you know, well over a billion dollars mm -hmm. and being seen by, I don't even know how many people, hundreds and hundreds of millions. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it's, it's, it's crazy to think about how much exposure the Stan Lee character as constructed by Stan Lee was getting by the end of his life. And yet, you know, as we can get into whenever you want, despite the fact that throughout the 21st century, because of those movies, he was getting, you know, the image was getting uh, more recognition than ever before. Um, you know, his life was really disintegrating throughout that 20 year period, sometimes more, more pronouncedly than other times, but it was not really a happy period for him even though it's the period where he becomes truly world famous, you know? Yeah, and that, that portion of the book is the portion that I knew almost nothing about outside of a few headlines here and there that I grabbed during the time. I mean, it is right, which is pure heartbreak. I'm oh, sorry, go ahead. What were you gonna say? Oh, I'm just saying, and it was pure heartbreak all, all the way through. Like that, yeah, that I mean, the last that. 20 years of his life, from 98 until 2018, are... It's so interesting. They're so... It was all hiding in plain sight. You know, he was living this public existence uh, in some ways where there were all kinds of clues that were dropped as to how weird things were behind the scenes. And yet just nobody was really investigating it, you know, up until the last year and a half of his life when the elder abuse became uh, headline news people just weren't really tracking any of this, even though it wouldn't have been that hard. Um, and even the stuff that was publicly known, people just weren't really asking questions about. And by that, I mainly mean all the projects that got announced in that 20-year period that either were complete failures or never even materialized in the first place. I mean, I mean, he didn't. the closest thing to a hit that he had in that period well, it was a couple of things. One would be Stripperella, which was not actually yeah. a hit, but at least people knew about. It had some, some um, you know, market recognition. And then there was Amazing, Fantastic, Incredible, the aforementioned graphic memoir from 2015. That did reasonably well, but it was just a repackaging of a memoir from 2002, and it didn't really have any interesting, you know, any new or revelatory information. And it. it was it was all just sort of the same old warmed over stories, many of which were not true or at least very dubious. And so you have all these announcements that keep happening every year, multiple announcements saying Stan, you know, from usually first from Stanley Media his dot-com bubble company, and then from POW Entertainment, his, his company after that, which still exists as a subsidiary of a Chinese conglomerate, um, you know, they would announce these projects breathlessly about like, okay, Stan is now partnering with, uh, you know, Hugh Hefner or Stan to, to make a comic, or Stan is partnering with Arnold Schwarzenegger to do a cartoon, you know, it just... Usually it was partnerships with people. You know, he's teaming with Ringo Starr to create a, a superhero based on Ringo Starr, all this stuff. And no one would ever check in to make to see whether those things turned into anything. And usually they didn't. And if they did turn into something, they were total flops. But again, you just wait around for the next press release about how he's doing something. And, you know, some people would publish that and that would be the end of it. No one would investigate it further. And it's, it's part and parcel of this larger set of frustrations that um, anyone who wanted to kind of know the truth of this world-famous character uh, 
sort of jumping the track on that sentence. So I'm not sure where I even began it. I, you know, when I'm doing podcasts, I'm always worried that I use all the too many like dependent clauses and that if it gets transcribed, I won't sound like I'm making any sense. But anyway, the point is, no, it was frustrating in retrospect that no one was investigating this stuff because all this information was just getting lost and no one was looking at things as they were happening in real time. So as a biographer who only started this book after Stan, I mean, you know, I wrote the profile, but the book itself didn't really didn't materialize until right after Stan passed away. You know, you look back and go, well, why, why wasn't anyone asking these questions? Why were we all just taking it for granted that Stan was doing great and, you know, he's appearing in the cameos, so that must mean things are A-OK for him. And even the elder abuse stuff in the mm-hmm. last year and a half was so out there. It was, well, it was both out there and out there, you know. I mean, it was was present in the public eye, and it was also very, it, it was kind of nuts how intense it was. But, like, let me put it this way. When the book first started getting advertised, my book, um... You know, the subtitle is The Rise and Fall of Stan Lee. And the most common complaint that I would get from people who obviously hadn't read the book because it wasn't out yet was people would go into the comment sections of, you know, say a Facebook ad or whatever and say, fall? He never fell. How dare you? (laughs) And it's always fascinating to me because this is always coming from people who profess to be Stan Lee super fans, right? They're, they're not saying, here's this guy I don't know much about, but it doesn't seem like he fell. They're saying, I love Stan. Stan is a hero of mine. How dare you say he fell? Yeah. When all of this, what it means, what it tells me is these super fans were not actually super fans. I mean, they, they were fans of the Stan Lee character, sure. But they, they, you know, all this news that you could easily find out about um, just didn't hold any interest for them or they filed it away as well who knows and didn't look into it um, when in reality the fall that's not me coming up with something new like uncovering that he fell that's all stuff that was very publicly documented and yet even the super fans just chose not to look yeah I mean I think it speaks to all those eyes you were talking about, like how many eyes are now on Stanley's cameo face and the fact that he is in all those cameos, clearly he's getting paid millions of dollars for those cameos. Right. right? But that was not the case. Right. Right. I mean, he he had an executive producer credit on virtually all these movies and, but it was ceremonial. He wasn't getting paid anything from it. Um, He'd initially had uh, a deal where he was supposed to get 10% of the profits uh, from the movies and the TV shows, but you know the details are a little unclear. But it seems that at first Marvel just wasn't paying that and using maybe a legal loophole to argue why they didn't have to. And then Stan sued them in 2002. But in 2005, when they settled, uh, Stan, as part of the settlement, gave up that percentage. And so that's three years before you know the um, uh, the Marvel Cinematic Universe launches. And yeah. I mean, if he'd retained that that percentage guy, he would have been a massively wealthier man than he was. Um, but yeah, you're right. People watching the movies don't know any of that. And they assume, okay, well, these movies are really successful. Stanley created all the characters. He must own the characters and he owns Marvel. Like all these just sort of vague assertions that are completely false, but that, you know, weren't getting contradicted in people's heads because no one was really paying that much close attention to Stan. You make all these assumptions and they're just not right. He, he, in fact, was, you know, getting paid scale, basically, to make the cameos and had this ceremonial executive producer credit. 
and that was it. You know, he was not he was not getting a cut of any of this. Um, and again, it, it's stuff that you could have just easily found out, but people didn't want to know. People hmm. people either weren't interested or just sublimated uh, whatever interest they might have had. Um, per, you know, again, playing armchair psychologist, I think a lot of it is people want the story of Stan Lee to be a happy story because Stan Lee was a happy guy in their eyes. The character of Stan Lee had... The character of Stan Lee had exactly one period of struggle, which was when he was sort of languishing at Marvel. Well, it wasn't called Marvel at the time. It was called various names, Timely, Atlas, etc. In like the 50s, basically like the 50s were always sort of portrayed, late 40s, 50s were portrayed as Stan was frustrated and Stan wasn't happy doing comics. But even then, it's not like... The, the popular portrayal was never like he was miserable uh, or bad things were happening to him. It's always just sort of like, well, he was bored or he, he didn't feel like he was doing very good work or he, he didn't like his boss. And that's the extent of anything negative in the public Stan Lee story. After that, it's like 1961, he invents the Fantastic Four. Again, this is the, the common narrative. Mm-hmm. He invents the Fantastic Four and then it's all uphill. And... You know, he has this amazing decade in the 60s, a pretty amazing decade in the 70s. Again, this is the public perception. And then in most chronicles of Stan Lee's life, the rest is just epilogue. It's like he did some stuff in the 70s, then he moved to California in 1980 and rode off into the sunset. And that's the end of the story. Or And, you know, maybe you'll have little things here and there about how great the rest of his life is, or you'll be like, well, Stanley Media, he started this company, it didn't go so well. Oh, well, he moved on. And now he does all kinds of cool projects. And that's just, it just wasn't accurate. People, people anyway, what I'm getting at is people, I think, just don't want there to be any tragedy or pain in their perception of Stan Lee. It, it, it's not about, you know, the veracity of Stan Lee's story. Uh, it's it's about the fact that Stan is this inspirational figure, and even beyond any moral judgments on him, you know, even if we just say he didn't do anything wrong, um, just the mere fact of how his life went, and especially how it went in the last year and a half of his life, but really in the past, the last 20, even 30 years of his life, um, if you look at that, it's a very sad story. Again, even beyond whether he's culpable for any of the sadness, mm-hmm. it's just a sad story, and people don't want to hear a sad story when they think about Stan Lee. It feels like uh, like the direct result of a monkey's paw or a deal with mm. Mephisto, where like he became like he made a wish to be a revered icon, and that wish came true, and he spent the rest of his life languishing. And um, and his superpower of going like I'm Stanley, I'm a happy guy, I'm okay, obscured the fact that he was actively suffering. Yeah, especially around the end, he was there was active, real pain, emotional and physical. But even when he was in good health and not being directly abused the way he was around the end. He was, you know, from all accounts, he he could be very happy and pleasant, obviously, but in the overall arc of his life, there was just a lot of frustration. He was not settled. He had not figured, he he had not ridden off into the sunset. There was still a lot of 
trying to be bigger and more successful and richer than he ever had been. Um, and, you know, he wasn't destitute by any means, but his financial situation led to a lot of that pain. And the financial situation was, and I hate saying this because it always sounds like sexist, misogynistic, whatever, but just based on a wide array of testimony from all kinds of people, including Stan himself, and to a certain extent, even including his daughter, his daughter and his wife, were uh, JC and Joan respectively, were just very big spenders. They spent a lot of his money very quickly on a day-to-day, month-to-month basis. And Stan needed to have liquid cash. You know, he, he needed to have access to you know, easily spendable money. And, you know, I, I think of a quote that I got from Larry Lieber, his brother, about, um, you know, Stan's late in life convention appearances. Stan and Larry were never that close. It's a very, that's a very sad story yeah. in and of itself. Um, but, you know, they would occasionally have conversations. And, uh, he, you know, Larry told me about a conversation in the last few years of Stan's life where Stan said, I'm just so exhausted from doing all these conventions. I, I hate it. I can't keep doing it. Um, uh, and Larry said, so why do you do it? And he said, it's my wife and daughter. They spend a lot, and I need to, I need to keep that lifestyle up. And, it's, again, it's just it, this guy was really not very happy. He was able to create a very happy-go-lucky persona, but – you know, he had a lot of problems with his daughter. He had the spending issues with his wife. He was not making the hit movies that he wanted to make. He was not making the hit TV shows he wanted to make. Um, he was not being recognized for anything he was doing in the present. Um, he was at these companies with very dubious, um, you know, dealings, especially Stanley Media, but even Pow Entertainment, his second company, to a certain extent. And, yeah, I mean, you can't generalize about, like, was someone happy, was someone unhappy for a stretch of 20, 30 years. But, you know, Stan was certainly not satisfied. Let me put mm-hmm. it that way. Yeah. Uh, I, I, that's the impression that I got, and that was one of the revelations of your book. Um, getting back to, uh, you know, the creation of Stan Lee, I, I think one of the points of view that you drop early on in the book – that I appreciated was that the conversation around who created what Jack Kirby, Stanley, uh, you know, Stanley, Steve Ditko, whatever the, the general consensus before I read your book, it usually comes down to, well, a little of column A, a little of column B. And you make the point that that kind of resolution to that debate is dangerous and it is yeah. yeah i mean you know as i say in the book it's it's confusing mathematical averages for historical possibility or probability whatever you know it, it feels very comforting to say well jack said he was the progenitor of these characters stan said he was the progenitor of these characters probably they just discussed the characters and came up with them as a team which is so completely antithetical to what both men said. You know, Stan always said that, you know, yes, he didn't draw the characters, but the idea for the characters, the ideas rather for the characters, all just sprung from him like Athena from the head of Zeus. You know, he just, he, he came up with these ideas out of thin air, maybe with a little bit of inspiration here and there, but it was, it was all him. Um, and then Jack's version was, 
you know, the stark opposite, which was just, it was all Jack. Um, and Jack did draw, so he his claim was he came with these characters from whole cloth in their entirety. And yet, for some reason, the consensus has come to be, well, it was probably both of them. And I just went, why? Why are we saying that? Why? I mean, it's a possibility. You know, what I say in the book is we're, I don't think we're ever going to know firmly exactly who created what, because uh, it was a fly-by-night industry with poor documentation. But to just sort of say it's probably somewhere in the middle, to me, just feels intellectually lazy mm-hmm. and potentially, you know, really obscuring what really happened. I don't know what really happened, but I don't like this idea that if we can't decide what happened, we should just meet in the middle because it makes us feel nice, you know? Stanley's story, the from beginning to end, feels it feels like a cautionary tale, but like mm. a cautionary tale for what? Like what are some of yeah. the morals you find yourself concluding? What do you want the reader to take away yeah. from Stan's story? I mean, that I would say it's a I mean if you derive lessons about what you should be cautious of then you know I'm all for that I didn't see this as a book where I was trying to put forth a morality play and say you know the wages of sin is death or whatever that that was not what I was going for the lessons of this book I hope uh, or at least the ones that I feel comfortable saying this is what I was going for and I hope I achieved it are I mean, it really comes down to one thing, which is you have to live with ambiguity. You have to live with factual ambiguity, and you have to live with moral ambiguity. And that's not just true for Stan. It's true for literally everyone. There's always going to be stuff you don't know and stuff that can't really be known. Um, And, you know, the factual ambiguity part of that story for this is, you know, who created the characters and other things as well. You know, who was committing all the elder abuse at the end? Um, you know, who, who was responsible for the downfall of Stanley Media. But the big question, of course, is who created these characters. And I think we just have to live with the ambiguity of not knowing. I, I mean, a lot of effort from a lot of smart people and a lot of people very close to the events in question have tried for many years to try and find proof one way or the other. And there just isn't any. Um so there's that. And then there's the, the moral ambiguity of, like, was Stan a good person? I don't think, again, that's a really an answerable question in any kind of definitive way. You have to live with the fact that he did some things that people don't find very savory, and he did he had some real achievements, and was a personable guy that the average person he interacted with really enjoyed interacting with. Um, but, you know... The, the other lesson, which is kind of an offshoot of the moral ambiguity question, is just that th- there are no superheroes. You know, Stan was not a superhero. And that sounds so, like, almost stupidly obvious. But you look at the way he's treated in popular culture, and he really, I mean, he really is treated as a superhero, down to actually being called that over and over and over again. You know, Stanley, a real life superhero. Mm. And I just think that's the. That's so dangerous, not just for Stan, but for anyone. I, I just find it incredibly um, detrimental that we have this culture, uh, you know, whether you want to say it's specifically American or just more universally human, where we take celebrities and make them out to be more than human and more virtuous than the average person or more virtuous than almost anybody. And we use them as examples and we use them as totems. And 
I just hate that. Mm. I hate I hate stan culture, and I mean that with a lowercase s. You know, I, I just don't like this idea that somebody can be, you know, uh, morally unambiguous and just a, 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 a you know ninety nine point nine percent great person. Mm. There just aren't any humans like that. Mm. And when you start putting them on that pedestal, they can get away with stuff. Um, you know, once you decide that someone's story and actions are, you know, uh, joyous and morally um, acceptable if, and even deserving of moral praise, then when they do things that are morally reprehensible, maybe you just write them off because you say, well, a person that good couldn't possibly have done that. Mm-hmm. Um, or, or you just ignore them because you say, well... You know, it's not nearly as important as all the good stuff they did, and they really are, you know, this amazing Titanic figure. And that's, you know, that's how politicians get away with stuff. It's mm-hmm. how cultural celebrities get away with stuff. It's just once you create them uh, in your mind as a superhuman, that's when, you know, you really abdicate your responsibility to hold people accountable you know um and that's yeah i guess if i if there's a moral to it uh cautionary tale it's less about you know don't be like stan it's more don't be like um a lot of the stan super fans not to diss them because it's it's you know i'm not saying if you love stan you're an idiot far from it i really respect the degree to which stan means a lot to a lot of people it's just when you take it too far um, you really start to lose your grip on reality, not just for Stan, but for, for any celebrity, really. You know, it's interesting. When we got done with your book, uh, actually, we had this conversation this morning. You know, we, we get up, we have our breakfast, uh, we get ready, we're waiting for to talk to you, and we come into our living room, and we're surrounded by memorabilia and posters and what have you. And from where I'm sitting right now, I can see a Funko Pop Stan Lee from Thor Ragnarok. I have a bust of Jack Kirby and Stan Lee that Randy Bowen did from the 90s. And I have above our fireplace, Lisa and I have a Jack Kirby art print and a Stan Lee art print, and they're next to each other. And Lisa and I had the conversation, what have we done? Do do we keep the Stan Lee (laughs) portrait above our fireplace? And what we came down to was, you know, when we hung those up, we were in the category of, well, a little of column A, a little of column B. And your book sort of destroyed that idea for For me, for us. And I'm not sure if I'm 100% comfortable having these memorabilia up anymore, but I also recognize that that print represents everything I loved about the idea of Stanley when I was 13 years old. Sure. And there's no shame in that. That's what I'm trying to say. Mm -hmm. I'm not trying to ruin anybody's childhood. I'm not trying to like, you know, cancel somebody because there were, you know, he did have a tremendous positive impact for a lot of people directly or indirectly. Um, It's just, you know, you have to be aware of, the shortcomings or, or the, the, the flaws, or, you know, you can even say the crimes in in Mm. some cases possibly, Uh, but you know, I can't answer the question for you of whether you should take the stuff down, but I do hope that at least it just, 
makes you, you know, think harder about it and that you're looking at it not so much as, well, here's my shrine to a god, but rather, you know, here are the, you know, the artifacts that have been left behind by a complicated life that achieved a lot and perhaps also, you know, did things that you are not a fan of. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the character of Stan Lee, though, you know, if you want to hold on to the character of Stan Lee, as long as you understand that it's separate from the lived reality of Stan Lee, you know, that's a hard thing to do mentally. But if you can pull that off, then great. Because, yeah, <laughs> the character of Stan Lee is very inspirational. You know, this idea of him embodying kind of the American dream of you work hard and you stay true to yourself, then you'll succeed. I mean, working hard and staying true to yourself are great things. I'm all for them. It's just the trouble comes when you think that that's really how it went down with Stanley, when it just really isn't. Yeah. To me, I I was I cautiously decided to keep them up as like as a memorialization of an ideal. Sure. And the idea that you memorialize things also when they are dead, <laughs> like yeah. the ideal is dead, but but the uh, but the pureness of what. He was trying to. Uh. Yeah, yes, Lisa, <laughs> but I'm not going to buy the Stanley Etcher sketch when I walk by it on Walmart anymore, right? Because like, <laughs> where does that what what is that representing? Where does that money go to yeah. now? You know? Yeah, though we have already bought the Etcher sketch, so that is a hypothetical <laughs> situation. How dare you call me out? <laughs> okay. So um, we do have a, a question for our Patreon members. This is going to be some exclusive content. Oh, I love exclusive content. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so um, so I'll, I'll keep this one loosey-goosey. Like, mm. what were some of your gateway comic book characters when you started being intrigued by comics? Mm. And perhaps what are you reading currently if you have any hot tricks? Sure. Sorry, friends, that answer is only for our Patreon subscribers. And all you need to do to hear the answer, which is a 10-minute answer that gets into some post-apocalyptic comics, some licensed comics, some real surprises there. Also, he gets into what he's working on next, what's his next biography. And if you want to hear all that information costs you $1. At the $1 tier of the Comic Book Couples Counseling Patreon, you can get access to bonus questions in our creator corners, as well as bonus episodes, our comically real episodes, our married to singles episodes, our, what, what else? Our friendly neighborhoods, Lisa. That's right. And at the $5 level, you get access to our scripts, some of my copious notes, um, and you get access to our Slack channel where we're just chatting it up. And if you want to join at our $10 level, Ooh. the happily ever after level, we will send you a care package. And we actually have a bunch of care packages that got to go out in the mail today. I mean, they probably should have gone in the mail in the past. That's true, but we're not going to shame ourselves. They're going out <laughs> today, Lisa. That's right. Uh, so, okay, that's enough about our Patreon. Please support us. Help our podcast out. We really appreciate it. We love all of you. Let's get back into the Abraham conversation. 
Uh, Abraham, we could talk all day. We did not cover everything we wanted to cover, but the great thing about you right now is you're all over the internet doing all kinds of podcasts. (laughs) Would recommend to our listeners listening to your off-panel chat. Uh, Oh, yeah, that was a lot. David's a really, really good interviewer. That was was a lot of fun. And uh, so, yeah, so if if we didn't cover what you wanted to hear about the Stanley bio from Abraham, then you can find it elsewhere. And you should just be reading the book. I was about to say, yeah, the best place to find out what's in the book is by reading the book. So, yeah. yeah. So, um, Abraham, where can our listeners find you online? Can you uh, yeah, set sure. them up? It's pretty easy. I, I'm the only Abraham Reisman that's been alive in decades upon decades, and the previous ones didn't have great search engine optimization. <laughs> so, I'm, I'm pretty easy to find. Uh, AbrahamReisman.com. It's I before E, but if you do transpose the I and the E accidentally, I registered that domain name too because everybody does that. It redirects to the main page. Um, so, yeah, you can find, uh, you know, a lot about me and, my, uh, you know, my past work is linked there and blah, blah, blah. And obviously prominently it links to the bookshop.org link for the book. You know, the book is available wherever books are sold. You know, I encourage you to support independent bookstores. Uh, if you want to, you know, help me rise in the Amazon rankings, I can't stop you and will probably be grateful on some level, but also feel guilty. So, uh, you know, IndieBound or Bookshop are good places to buy the book and uh, or just, you know, call up your local bookstore. I'm, I'm sure they need the business. I even love your plugs. They're, they're like, here's all of the information. You can spell my name wrong. Judgment free. <laughs> Dude, I, I, I'm telling you, I'm a... If there's one thing that I've learned as a journalist and as, uh, you know, a longtime user of the Internet, um, it's just you got to give people information. There's all too many times when, yeah, you are doing plugs and it's just sort of like, I don't know, find me somewhere. And you're like, I want to know where this person is. (laughs) You got to nudge people. I used to work in digital marketing. I used to work in digital marketing and learned a lot about like how do you promote yourself? That was not the point of what I was doing there. I was promoting other people, but you learn a lot about how it just comes down to, you know, you need to have the button in the right part of the page. You need to have the button go directly to the action that you want people to take. Anyway, I could ramble about that all day, but thank you for recognizing that I'm good at plugging. (laughs) I I take a lot of pride in and very rarely is acknowledged. Uh, Well, we respect and admire your hustle this week and uh, every week afterwards. Thank you so much for coming on to the show. And uh, yeah, again, buy the book, True Believer, The Rise and Fall of Stan Lee. It is a brilliant and, as Lisa pointed out at the beginning, an exhilarating read, a true page turner. You guys are great. This was a really great conversation. I'm I'm glad I learned about this pod. Yeah. Well, you're welcome on any time to talk about any subject. Yeah, well, I'm sure I'll get back to writing about comics sooner rather than later, and I'll, I'll give you a jingle, and maybe we can chat again. Uh, that perfect. sounds good. Abraham, thank you so much. You have a wonderful day. You too. How did I cut you off at the knees, Brad? By telling him that, yes, indeed, I had already purchased the Stanley Etch-A-Sketch. Which I have sketched on, and I enjoy it very much. It works perfectly well like any other Stanley Etch-A-Sketch, but it's an absurd thing. And, you know, I I am generally concerned about giving money to the corporations that now own the brand of Stan Lee. And we didn't really even get into that in this conversation, but... The back half of this book is wild, guys. The stories that you learn around Stanley Media and POW Entertainment. Uh, I mean, it's 
It's pretty grim. For the record, all of our Stanley stuff is still currently on display, and we're not going to say that we it doesn't feel complicated to us, but we still, at, at least we still admire the person that Stanley aspired to be. And the person that I saw when I was 12 years old, mm. whether that person ever existed, doesn't really matter, you know? at the end of the day for Brad and Lisa. We just have to accept that it is a fantasy. Yeah, I mean, as Abraham said, you know, being aware of the context of that totem that's on our shelf is important. So when we look at that, we look at not just what we thought Stanley was, but what we now think Stanley was and what we're struggling with what Stanley was. Does that make sense? It. I mean, it does. And the part of the interview that I truly cherish is Abraham pointing out that if what you are interested in is the actual literal truth of a situation, and it can be this like the the credit of Fantastic Four, is it Stan, is it Jack? The idea of going, well, the truth often just meets in the middle. Like that's a fallacy. And it's also very reductive. If we are truly interested in the truth, the truth is we don't know. And Abraham is submitting the idea that we can't know, which I understand. But in the book, Abraham does mention that somebody offhandedly said that there is that Stan Lee had storage units yes. full of art, which nobody apparently has had access to yet. And maybe the truth is in there. Let's not stop looking. I mean, I, I, yes, I agree. We should not stop looking for what the truth is. My ultimate like review of True Believer, The Rise and Fall of Stan Lee, is I went into reading it going, Jack Kirby deserves more credit. And I still believe Jack Kirby deserves more credit. Steve Ditko deserves more credit. John Romita deserves more credit. And I and I, I went into True Believer mad at Stan Lee. And this book, while I'm reading it, will have moments where you get even more mad at Stan Lee and your blood will boil and it should boil. What surprised me about reading True Believer, The Rise and Fall of Stan Lee is that I didn't end the story of Stanley infuriated at the man who was Stanley or infuriated at the man who was once Stanley Lieber. I pity him. Mm -hmm. I feel for him. I empathize with him. And that is ultimately the greatest gift that True Believer gave me. And we can't dismiss what Stanley, the icon, Stanley, the image means to so many people. Yes. And that has value, even if it is not 100% built on a palace of facts. Uh, like Abraham gets access to so many individuals, and some of the best bits of the book are the conversations that he had with Stan's brother, Larry, with Jim Shooter, uh, you know, with even with JC, like the brief moments of uh, of appearances from Stanley's daughter. Like, like, it's incredible to hear their voices and to hear their ideas and hear their points of view as well. But there is more to this book than just he said, she said. Yeah. He goes to archived documents, news briefs. Video. Video. Audio. Yeah. 
uh, he has an unprecedented amount of access and it's incredible the amount of material that Stanley saved over his lifetime. And uh, you would think, you know, you you wouldn't want to save that type of material about your life. And you do have to recognize, like, you know, what would it be like for you if a biographer came in and fact-checked every anecdote you did or any tweet you did? Our perspectives on ourselves and our personal narratives and truths all of the time. And I do think about, like, you know, whenever on Facebook or whatever, like an old... Status, status comes up. Status comes up. I'm like, who is that person? Well, you think about the stories that you've told about your life, your favorite anecdotes, and through embellishments, uh, how they have become bigger and bigger in the legend in your mind. And you have to question what is your own truth? And can you even know your own truth? Or even more complicated, can other people understand your truth based on the BS that you're tossing off any yeah. random day. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. What I do know is what I think about Stanley today could very well change. And True Believer, The Rise and Fall of Stanley is the kind of biography that I look forward to revisiting because it is a thrilling read. And because of my own obsessions over this industry, I enjoy sinking into this thought process, this essay that Abraham Reisman has developed here in his book. I know one thing that is absolutely objective truth, that it is time to wrap up this episode. Yeah, for sure. So next week, we are going to get back to our X-Couple series. We're reading the first two volumes of Christina Strain's Generation X, talking about the relationship between Morph and Hindsight. Very excited to talk about that comic. It is super cute, very underrated. If you have not read that series, please do so and join us next week. But Lisa, until then, where can our listeners send their words of affirmation to you? I am always accepting words of affirmation at Sidewalk Siren on Instagram and Twitter. If you have words of affirmation for our logo, you can send them to Aaron Prescott at A Cool Hand Fluke. And if you have some words of affirmation for our radical banner art, send them over to at Karen underscore X-Men fan. Brad, mm. where can our listeners send their words of affirmation to you? You can find me on all social medias at MouthDork. If you'd like to spend more quality time with us, you can subscribe to us on Podbean, Spotify, Stitcher, YouTube, and iTunes. If you'd like to get exclusive, Ooh. you can join our Patreon where you'll get more content, including weekly bonus episodes. If you'd like to reach out and touch us electronically, mm -hmm. you can email the podcast, cbccpodcast at gmail.com. You can visit our website, comicbookcouplescounseling.com, or follow us on Instagram and Twitter at cbccpodcast. You can give us the gift of five stars on iTunes or Apple Podcasts or whatever we're calling it now. <laughs> and if you'd like to do an act of service, why not write a review for the show while you're there? It really helps the podcast. We are fluent and receptive in all five love languages. It really warms our hearts. So until next time, friends, keep your love tank full. And your psychic rapport open. Doopy doopy.